0: Read in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, and I'm gonna read from the ESV English Standard Version. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. All right. Well, I speak a little louder than Bethany, so you can lower that or I will cause harm to your ears. You know, all of us here are sensitive in varying levels towards sin. There are certain things in life that if you see it, you will have a heightened sensitivity towards, very different than someone else. Example, theft. Some of us have a heightened sense of the injustice of thefts. Maybe you've been robbed. Maybe your house has been ransacked like ours has been several times. Or maybe it doesn't bother you at all. In fact, Ocean's Eleven is your favorite movie. You think theft is interesting and fun and amusing. Or take another one that's commonly celebrated in our culture, violence. Violence is abhorred by God, but for whatever reason, our hearts have not been calibrated by God's Word. And so some of you may delight in violence. You watch violence. You revel in violence on tv or in certain kinds of sports but i can just go down the list we're all going to have differences to certain things we're more tuned in with the heart of god in and less tuned in more like the culture less like the culture but what i can say emphatically is that every single one of you here share a common hatred of one thing and that's hypocrisy phonies there's no culture that's like, well, our culture, we're pretty, we're pretty good about those. We, we like phonies. No, no. Universally speaking, no matter what culture or background you come from, you have an innate hatred and a dislike towards hypocrisy. We all do. And if you share that hatred that I have, that disdain that I have, then it's really helpful to know how to spot a phony, and even more importantly, how to spot if that phony is you. See, the book of First John is an incredibly helpful letter because it answers a number of questions, but one of the primary questions it answers is, how do you know if you are legit? How do you know if you're really one of God's children? How do you really know you are walking in the light? And what are the marks of that for a Christian? So it's helpful for so-called Christians to know that they actually aren't Christians so they can come and find mercy and life in Jesus. And it's also helpful as we disciple others and what it looks like increasingly, what it looks like to be like Christ and be a son and daughter of the light. That's why the title of this sermon series is 1 John, Children, I just forgot it. What is it? Children, how God's children live. Thanks. Yeah, it's really memorable. I got it down. <laughs> What's my sermon again, Ross? What am I preaching on? <laughs> so let's jump into our passage and then I'm going to build it out. First, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. What's that message? That God is light and in him is no darkness. Remember, this is handed down revelation. 1 John 1 through 4, we see this idea. It's not something the apostles are just making up because they had some vision. They actually encountered the risen Christ. They smelled him. They touched him. They spent time with him. And they have been handed down this truth, and now they're proclaiming it to us. So what is the message? God is light. Not physical light, though physical light will often accompany the reality that he is light. If you read throughout the Gospel of John, which is intricately connected to 1 John You're going to see this word light over and over again. If you have even the most basic Bible study software or use a website, just look up light and darkness in John and 1 John. You're going to see it over and over and over again. And if you look at all those cases of light, you see the sense of goodness, holiness, truth, life, purity. No one word exactly gets at what light means. And that's why you need to know the whole Bible, not just read in one context. It gets all of what life is. But if you look at John 1, 1 John 1, they're very connected to the first chapter in the Bible, Genesis 1. Pastor Ross shared that connection with us last week. And what happens when God speaks forth light, what comes from the light? Life. So you see light and life intricately connected so when you think about god is light you need to think that some this idea of an overflowing of life abundance of life that comes in god's light but when we say that god is light we're not saying god is like just like we say someone is good what i mean by that is i would dare say that many of you here who know me most of you know me would call me good I wouldn't be qualified as a pastor if I was not good. But none of you would say, Sam is goodness itself. Or Sam is good and in him is no darkness, not at all. And if you feel that way about me, just talk to my wife or my kids. If you feel that way about me, your expectations are wholly wrong. But yet, God is not like me. You can have the highest most lofty expectations about his goodness, about his purity, about his life-givingness, and you would still fall short of how good he is, how light he is, how life-giving he is, how pure he is. No matter how far you search, if you could live in eternity a million years and then another million years and get to know him more, you still would not see any darkness in him. The beauty, I, love, I love how the end of the Gospel of John speaks of this, is that even at the end of walking with Jesus night and day for several years, they say, there's no sin in him. If I get to hang out with you, especially if we go on a mission trip, I will see sin in you, and you'll see sin in me. And yet, the more you spend time with God, the more you see that there is no end to his goodness, and there's no beginning of bad in him. If you take New Testament Greek, in school, one of the first books you translate is 1 John. And I forgot a lot of things, but one of the things I did not forget is that this phrase right here is a double negative. It's bad grammar, but it's emphatic. This is how you literally translate this passage. God is light, and darkness in him is not. Not at all. John is laying it thick, trying to hammer in the point. There is no darkness in him at all. And so the rest of this section until we get to chapter 4 is overflowing and expounding this reality that God is like. If God is like, what then does that mean for us in our relationship with God? And then later on, it's going to talk about God is love. If God is love, then what does that look like for us in life? That's how John is structuring this letter. So he's going to give us, in this section today, three false claims by those who are deceived, who believe that they're in the light. Three false claims. And then, each one of those false claims will be followed by the sign of true children of light. The final sign we will cover next week, when we get into chapter 2. One scholar says it like this. John offers, the tests that John offers are objective and observable. Designed to reveal a person's true intentions apart from verbal claims. Deeds are the test for words. And while words can be false, John seems to believe that a person's actions reveal his or her true nature. Last week, Pastor Ross shared with with us that the text shows us that there were some in the church who left the church, they split the church, and they had these heretical teachings. And it's likely that these teachings are remaining within the body. So we're going to examine some of these false claims made by these professing Christians. Note that these claims are not by secularists. They're not from non-Christians. They are professing believers. And they're making these claims. So let's look at the first claim, false claim. Verse 6. If we claim that we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we claim that we have fellowship with God, remember, these people are professing believers. And this word fellowship is a strong word. It's not like, oh, yeah, I know him. No, fellowship implies that you have an intimate relationship with the person. If you met someone one time, you'd be like, yeah, I fellowship with them. That just wouldn't make sense, right? Fellowship implies intimacy as well as a shared common goal that you are around. And these professing Christians are claiming they have fellowship with God, and yet they're walking in darkness. Do you remember how the Bible talks about the word walk? It's throughout the whole scripture. We talked about it, especially when we talked about Enoch walking with God in our series in Genesis. This idea of walking with God is a total reality. It's not like, oh yeah, I prayed a prayer back in 1980. I walked with God. No, it's a continual present action that encompasses all your life. It's who you are. It's what you're characterized by. But in this situation, these professing believers are not walking with God. They're walking in darkness. What does it mean that someone is walking in darkness? Well... It seems intuitive enough, but let's look at a text to make sure the Bible is letting us know what words mean, not our 21st century senses. John chapter 3, verse 19. Would you read it with me? And this is the judgment the light has come into the world. And darkness rather than light because evil. So when Jesus came into the world, people. Loved the darkness. They fled from him. Why? Because what does the text say? Their works were evil. So, So, obviously, this is not a physical darkness, like, oh, these people really like the nighttime, but it's darkness throughout the Bible is representing evil. So, let's put this together. There are these false Christians who were around, or maybe they left and their teachings are still remaining. And they taught that they they claimed that they had close fellowship with God. And yet, their pattern of living was in darkness, was evil. If that is the case, then verse 6, John says this. They are lying. They are lying. If you claim that you have fellowship with God but walk in darkness, you are lying. Why? How could they be lying? Well, it's imagine... You are in a dark room, and someone says, is the light on? You said, yes, the light's on. And yet you're in pitch darkness, black darkness, and you're stumbling around, falling over kitchen tables or like coffee tables and banging your knees. It's just absolutely nonsense to say you have light because light and darkness are mutually exclusive. You can't be like, this room is full of light and full of darkness. There's no yin and yang with God. The light comes and it overwhelms, it overcomes the darkness. Darkness flees when light comes. Similarly, so does evil. When goodness comes, evil flees. So it is with the person who claims they have fellowship with God and yet consistently walks in darkness, they are a liar, the Bible says. And not just a liar, John says they do not practice the truth. Practice the truth? I thought you just know the truth, believe the truth, confess the truth. See, the Bible has no category of true intellectual belief that is divorced with lifestyle transformation. Why? Because if you actually believe what this book says, it radically changes your life. It does. It cannot And one of the hardest things for us in the church is if you have family members who used to profess Christ or they still profess Christ and they live like the world, they're walking in darkness, it is so hard for us to believe that they're actually not in Christ. We don't want to believe it. I get that. I know that. I have four kids. I know that they're going to go through seasons of darkness. I'm going to want to believe. No, no, no. They're a Christian. They're Christians. Look, they said it. They confessed it. But how do we know that your confession is true? Your lifestyle, your walk, you practice the truth. I don't care how many creeds you can write down or how many Bible verses you memorize in awanas, or whatever you did in your background. If you aren't practicing the truth, you don't know the truth. Jesus says this plainly. John chapter 8, verse 12. Would you read this again? Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Hear this absolute language. They will not walk in the darkness. Not, they may or may not. It's up to them. Later on, Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 46. Look at this. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. How did you know? My voice is starting to fade already. Thank you. You guys all know. You know what's so funny? If you listen to our sermons on the podcast, you can hear this. It's so loud. So lately, I've been trying to, like, do it really slowly. So people are not like, what is going on? Now that is distracting. Jesus came to bring light so that we may not remain in darkness. How can we say we know Jesus when we continue to walk in darkness? Either Jesus is a liar, a failure, or we don't actually believe in him. Now let's transition to the counterclaim. Remember, there's a lie, a false claim, and then John is gonna follow with a truth claim of what Christians really live like. Verse seven. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This is the exact opposite. They are walking in darkness, these people, characterized by darkness, but God's people, his children, walk in light. How do you know you're walking in the light? You're going to see two primary truths in this passage today. What does it look like to walk in light? So if I asked you, are you walking in the light? I think a lot of you say yes. Well, then, how do you know? Well, here's the first one, and it's surprising. We have fellowship with one another. Does that surprise you? That the first test, the first sign that you are actually walking in the light is that you have fellowship with other Christians, one another. You, you, you wouldn't think he would say that. You'd say something else. Like the first sign you're walking in line is you fast every day or you, you pray or you memorize your Bible or you go on retreats or you do this or that. You serve at APC. No, no. You have fellowship with others. Verse 7 is actually building off of verse 3. Let's go back real quick. I, I can't re-preach it because um, Ross did a great job. But look at this. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, why? You too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. At the core of the gospel is joy, a fellowship of joy, a communal relationship within the triune God that overflows to His people, and then when we are with Him, it overflows to where we want to be with others who are with Him. And it's just beautiful, beautiful family of joy and love. So if you have fellowship with God, then you have fellowship with one another, other fellow Christians, other fellow children of the light. That is the first sign you are walking in the light. There is no such thing as solo Christianity. Don't believe that lie. You will not find that in the Bible. There is no, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I don't need to be a member at a church or be deeply committed. I have my own thing with God. We have an understanding. Well, if you have an understanding, it's not the understanding from the word. It's your own man-made, man-shaped God understanding. There is no such thing as walking in the light with God and not having deep fellowship with other believers. This is one of the idols of the American church that we must go to war with. These so-called churches where, well, I'm going to get in trouble. It's not in the manuscript, so that's usually when I get in trouble. Um, These so-called churches where there's thousands of attenders. What church do you attend? Where do you see that in the Bible, this idea of attending? Like it's some concert, some club. What family are you a part of? How could you say you go to the church when the pastors don't even know your name? Or people don't actually know your stuff and your junk and your triumphs and your struggles? That's not a church. That's an institution that you attend and check in. Church is a family where you walk with fellowship with other imperfect believers walking with a perfect one. That wasn't too bad, was it? Maybe. It depends. It depends. Those who have fellowship with Jesus love being around with others who have fellowship with Jesus. Do you love the fellowship of the saints? Do you love being around others who walk in the light? Or are you your best friends in the darkness? Don't get, do you get along more with non-Christians than Christians? <laughs> don't, don't misunderstand me. You ought to have good friendships with non-believers. We are not called to retreat from the world, but to pursue the world, to love the world, not be of the world though. But something is deeply wrong is if your closest affinities, the people you most resonate with, are not Christians. Because if you're a Christian, you're saying, "Jesus is my greatest treasure. The most important thing about my life, and everything revolves around is knowing and loving God, and making much of him. If you say that and yet your best friends don't hold that, how does that make any sense? It doesn't make sense. Now let's move to another surprising result of walking in the light. The latter half of verse seven. And the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. This is surprising. He just talked about fellowship with other believers and now he's talking about the blood of Jesus cleansing us. We're not talking about physical blood. We're talking about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross not only forgives us, but cleanses us of all sin. See, sin has primarily a consequence with our relationship with God. We're going to get to that more next week. But there's also a polluting effect to sin, a defiling effect to sin. When I used to be addicted to pornography, I had an intuitive sense that I needed to take a shower while I was praying and repenting. No one told me, take a shower. I just felt dirty. I felt a deep stain on my soul that was deeper than I could verbalize. And I just felt like I needed to wash outwardly because something was so dirty inwardly. See, sin doesn't only ruin our relationship with God, it also has a polluting effect to our soul. And what does this teach us here? Is that the blood of Jesus not only forgives you, gives you access to that forgiveness with the Father, it actually cleanses you of all your sin, shame, and guilt. Amen? This is what some theologians call expiation. Expiation, out of. It's taking out of you this shame and this sin. You do not have to carry it anymore. It's been taken away by the cross. And some of you feel that today. You feel this deep shame. Your soul at a soul level. And you don't have to. Because the blood of Jesus can cleanse you and remove it. When you have fellowship with God and with his people, there is a cleansing effect. Not for just some sins. What does it say? All sin. All sin. Not just understandable sins not just little sins, not just sins after you do it a few times and then no more, all sins. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus is. The removal of our guilt and shame as if you've never done it. The more you walk with God, the more his light shines into our dark hearts and transforms even the most stubborn and darkest crevices of our soul. But don't misunderstand John. See, 1 John is one of those dangerous books that if you read things in isolation and out of context, you're going to run wild with misinterpretations. 1 John was meant to be read together. Let's try that again. Together, higher. John is not saying you will not sin. Walking with God doesn't mean perfection. Perfection. This passage teaches us that Christians walk in the light. That is their norm, their character. And yet, they also sin. John does not have some pie-in-the-sky, perfectionistic, sinless picture of the Christian life where it's just easy, sin's easy, it's not a big deal anymore, conquered that. No, no, he gets it. Look at verse 8. Here's the second false claim. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not, no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Throughout history, there have been professing Christians who believe that they have attained some level of sinlessness. In this original context in 1 John, we see this idea, this pseudo-Christianity that believes that Christians can arrive today. Because of Christ, I'm sinless. There's an amusing story, because this has been around for a long time. A lot of you guys know that my THM thesis is on Charles Spurgeon. He's one of my favorite favorite guys. And there's this amusing story of him at a Baptist preacher's conference. And one of the preachers stands up at one of the sessions and declares that he is sinlessly perfect. So the next morning, Spurgeon comes from behind him during breakfast and pours an entire pitcher of milk on his head. And instantly, that man's sinless perfection disappeared. (laughs) This has been around forever, this idea that you can come to a place of perfection. And we see this thinking in our passage. These false Christians are saying, I fellowship with God, I don't have any more sin. And if that's the case, this passage, John is saying, you are deceived and the truth is not in you. And note that it's not that you are deceived by the devil, though I'm sure the devil is having fun in part playing his part. Who's deceiving? Ourselves. The text says ourselves. We're being deceived. We're deceiving ourselves. Self-deception is one of the most dangerous traps. Why? Because the person who is self-deceived deceived, doesn't know it. It's not like I'm deceived, y'all. I got blinders on my eyes. No, you think you see, but you're blind. You're bamboozled, you're tricked, and you did it to yourself, and you have no idea. This is why I am usually quite receptive to people when they bring correction to me, no matter how ridiculous it may initially seem to me, and believe it or not, I I get corrected a lot. The reason why I'm usually receptive is because I know this passage and others that teach me that Sam Choi still sins and that I can and you can deceive ourselves, which means that if a brother or sister brings to my attention a sin in my life, even if it's poorly done, it's likely... That there's something there. Not always, but likely there's something there. And some of you might say, Sam, Sam, remember that time I brought correction to you and you didn't take it? Okay, I said I usually be receptive. Usually receptive. See, I can still self-deceive myself. I still sin. That's why I need this passage. Why you need this passage. God help us. This is an important lesson for all people, including Christians. We can self-deceive ourselves that we don't sin anymore. We would never say that. I mean, none of you here would raise your hands i never sin. But we Functionally, believe we don't really sin. We, we say words like, I'm not perfect, right? You guys heard people say that, parents say that, I'm not perfect, I'm not a perfect mom. That doesn't tell you anything. Like literally you're, you're saying the same thing everyone can say in the world. Or we, we use words like mistakes or um, favorite politician phrase, indiscretions, right? We use these words that kind of skirt around that doesn't get at the heart that we still sin. We're deeply bothered by other people's sins, but not our own. We confess everyone else's sins, but not our own. This happens so often in counseling sessions when marriages are on the rock. Both of the spouses can only see see the sin in the other person and not their their own. Now, we're going to actually skip verse 9 for a second, jump to verse 10, because verse 10 and verse 8 are parallel. Put up verse 10. This is the third false claim. Sounds familiar? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Go to verse 8. It's the next slide. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see the parallel right there? Both verses are claiming that we have not sinned and no sin. And they're both deceiving themselves. They're both making God a liar with that claim. Why would claiming you have no sin make God a liar? Well, because the word says you have sin and you're saying you don't. So either God's a liar or you are. So the next time you claim you have no sin in a situation, in a relational conflict, or you just assume that you don't have sin, you're either deceiving yourselves or you're calling God a liar. Let's continue to see these parables. parallels. Verse eight says, then the truth is not in us. Verse 10, then the word is not in us. See, the only people who claim sinlessness or assume they're pretty blameless in any situation are those who are not steeped in God's word. See, because if you were steeped in God's word and God's truth, you would be regularly reminded how far you still fall short. It's those who are ignorant of God's word are those who think they're pretty good people. And if you are afraid to read God's word, you don't get a pass. You don't get a free pass with God, saying, well, I didn't really know that was there. It's here. You can see it. You probably have them on your phone or at home. The people who are most grieved by their sin are those that I know who are most in God's word regularly. Your conscience is calibrated rightly towards sin. You feel rightly towards the things you ought to feel rightly. It's amazing That my biggest heroes of the faith, my mentors, they talk about their sin a great deal and even more about their great Savior. And I remember as a younger believer, I've been walking with Jesus for 18 years now, about, I was really confused by that because these were my heroes, and yet they talked about their sin more than I talked about my sin. And it was only until I, as I walked closer to God, that I start to realize how much more sin was in my heart. See, the pattern that I've discovered over the years as a pastor and as just a Christian with eyes is that those who confess their sin much and talk about the Savior most are the most mature in a, in a, in a community, and those who talk little of their sin talk little of the Savior. Immaturity is deeply correlated with how much you think of your sin and how much you think of the Savior. How does this work? Why does this happen this way? Well, remind me, what does light do? It exposes. It shines in dark places. The more light, the more dirt. Even a cheap motel room can look clean with low lighting. Ugh. But if you crank up the light, the UV light on the bed, you know what I'm saying? You're like, oh my gosh, I got, I'm, I'm sleeping somewhere else. So it is with those who have fellowship with the light. The closer you get to the sun, the more the light exposes our hearts. And the more you walk in the light, the light increasingly transforms you and eradicates the darkness. Darkness. And listen to this, the more you walk in the light, the more you obey Jesus and go and do hard things and step into other people's darkness. And when you step into other people's darkness and you try to shine light, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. You're going to get unthinked. (laughs) You're going to get betrayed. You're going to get hurt by these people. And what happens when you follow Jesus into those hard places and love people who don't want to be loved or who actually don't receive your love? What happens? It starts to expose in our hearts our self-righteousness, our entitlement, our pride. More and more. Some of you have never even experienced that because you're still dealing with your own self-inflicted darkness. Maturity is getting to the place where you're not just constantly suffering because of your own stupid sins that you keep wallowing back into, but that you're actually stepping into other people's sins because you're trying to help them. Light is shining through you, and as you do that, you will get hit. You will get hurt. I want to call you into that. Some of you, your entire existence of suffering is just merely suffering because this fallen world is suffering because of your own sin. So you can't even get to the place where you're loving other people radically and then letting them hurt you and wrong you because that's what happens when you love the darkness. This is why the mature are most dialed in with their sin and talk much of the Savior. They have the word of truth in them regularly, which exposes and transforms. They are obeying Jesus and falling him into the darkest places, and that exposes their own heart. They are walking close fellowship with other Christians, walking the light, which exposes and transforms. Have you ever been around someone who's godlier than you and they're convicted by something, and you're like, whoa, I'm not convicted by that. What does that do? It exposes us. Shines light in areas that we're desensitized to, that we have compromised, where our heart is, our consciences are not calibrated correctly. Walk with people who are in the light, and it'll expose us and transform us. Now, I know this is heavy. I know some of you feel like I just kind of beat you over the head. And my prayer and hope is that I'm only telling you what the Bible tells you. God, help me and correct me if I'm being unfaithful to what God says. But this passage doesn't stop here. It gives us great hope. I want to share with you one of the most precious promises in the Bible. A promise that I have literally, and I'm not being sarcastic, I'm not being I'm not exaggerating, I've literally said thousands of times in my life because I've sinned thousands of times. 1 John 1:9. One of the first few verses I memorized when I became a believer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean to confess? We're acknowledging to God our sin. He already knows, but we're acknowledging our sin to God. We do it specifically, not generally, and we do it sincerely. And the greatest consequence of our sin is not the guilt and shame, the result of our sin, but the greatest consequence is the severed relationship that we have created between our God, the one we love, the strain we now have in our communion with God. We are grieved that we sinned against him and hurt him. That's why you hear David say that, you and you alone have I sinned against, even though we sinned against a ton of of people. This coming Wednesday, we're gonna celebrate Ash Wednesday. I'm gonna be doing a teaching on how do you practically repent and confess something that I think a lot of us have been taught in. I wasn't. I just kind of figured it out and kind of stumbled around over the years. And everyone's welcome to it. We're going to have a meal. I'll share more details downstairs. We're calling people to fast on Wednesday as we begin this season of Lent, building up towards Easter. I'm going to teach more about this verse and more. So put a pin there and please come. But what happens when you confess truly, sincerely, specifically? The Bible says God is faithful. Not just faithful, he is just. To do what? Forgive us and cleanse us. How is God faithful and just to forgive us? That sounds wrong because if you have any semblance of reality, if you understand how the world worked, it should say God is faithful and just to, to punish Sam Choi and destroy him for his unrighteousness. Isn't that true justice? for all the wrongs that I have done and I still do. But this is not what the word says. How do we make sense of this seeming miscarriage of justice and twisted sense of faithfulness? Well, let me say it simply, and we're going to get into it more next week. All of us here have sinned, all of us. This much is clear. And our sin deserve a penalty. The penalty is death. And on the cross, Jesus volunteers to take my penalty, your penalty. He pays our debts with his death. And thus, there is nothing left to pay. The bill is paid in full. It's, if I were to pay for your meal at a restaurant, not only would it be indecent or dishonorable, it would be impossible for you then to follow up and try to pay for it. Would it not? Let me pay for it. It's already been paid, sir, ma'am. But let me, sorry, the ba- bill is clear. It's paid in full. You can't do anything. So when you go before the Father and you confess your sins, you do not have to beg him for forgiveness. You don't need to strong arm him or put yourself in a penalty box enough to where God's like, all right, I'll forgive you now. No, 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 no. You can point to God's faithfulness and justice to forgive you of your sins. God is faithful and just to forgive because it is unjust for someone to pay a fine that has already been paid. If God were not to forgive you of your sins, then Jesus died in vain, and God would be unjust. God has mercy on us all the time. but the emphasis of this passage is that God is showing us that he is being just and faithful to forgive us. It was his idea. It is consistent with his character. So if you think you are bothering him or inconveniencing him or finding some loophole when you ask forgiveness, no, it was God's idea to put this here because he wants to extend forgiveness to you. This was his plan. He wants to extend mercy and forgiveness to all of us here. Now, if you think hard enough, you may wonder, why do we have to ask for forgiveness if we've already asked for forgiveness once? Like, I'm a Christian. Am I asking God to die for me again? Well, we're not asking Jesus to get back on the cross. Our debt has been once and for all paid. But when we continue to sin as Christians, and we will, according to this passage, we are hurting our relationship with God. So when you are asking for forgiveness, Christian, you are not asking to be accepted because you already are or loved because you already are. You're asking for your relationship with God to be restored and healed. It's a relational strain that's now being healed. It's not a judicial forgiveness. Does, Does that make sense? That is profoundly important for you to understand. It's not judicial. It's not like you're going to hell right now. It's that you are trying to repair and God is eager to repair your broken relationship with him. That's what you're doing. So forgiveness is needed to restore our communion with God. So let me let me kind of land the plane here. Some of you here are beating yourself up. You wallow in your shame and you don't believe God can really forgive you or should forgive you. And if that's the case, you're making Jesus' death for nothing. Trust in God's word not based on how you feel or based on how long you can punish yourself. God said it, it was his idea. He wants to extend forgiveness to you. His death is sufficient for you. And sometimes it takes time to believe this word, especially if you blew it really hard, right? We feel, we ask for forgiveness, and yet we still feel dirty. But listen, as you grow in Christ, the more you are immersed in his word, the more these words get, deeply root in your heart and uproot the lies, the more your conviction grows that 1 John 1.9 is actually true, because it is. So if you feel like you've asked for forgiveness and you feel lingering guilt and shame, what do you do? Memorize this, say it over yourself. Get in close fellowship with other believers, like a DNA group, and ask them to remind you of these truths and wash you with these truths. Remind me again that I'm forgiven, friend. Speak these truths again over to my heart. I'm not believing them today. And it's a day-to-day reality. It's not like every day you're like, well, I got that one time. No, it's a day-to-day fight where we can regress and forget these truths. And some of you here have been hiding sin. You have been walking in darkness. And that is not what you've been called to. God has called you into the light. He transferred, you, he transferred you, Colossians 1, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is not your identity. Come back into the light. Come back to the light. Some of you have been avoiding the church community because one of the biggest Correlations to non-church gathering attendance is hidden sin. Not always, but usually. Because what happens when you feel sin and shame? Do you want to be around light? No, you don't. You avoid it. And if that's been you and you're here today, I'm so glad you're here. Step in the light. God's arms are open for you. Come in to the fellowship of the light again. And finally, if you are here and you've never truly repented and asked and confessed your sins, truly, today's the day, the first time you can do it. His mercy is real, and it's available for you. He died for this. If that's you, please come, with, come to me. I wanna pray with you. I wanna talk with you about this. Let me just say this, and the, the band can come up. I can't tell you how many churches are destroyed and relationships hindered because people are carrying secret shame and sin. It's one of the biggest killers in marriages, in relationships, and in the church. And sometimes we think if we just wait it out, it'll be okay. You know, the reason why you don't feel bad anymore because you waited it out is not because it's okay. It's because your conscience has been warped and you don't feel bad about it anymore. You didn't do anything by waiting it out. You just further your warping heart. <laughs> and so I want to invite you to come into the light. The next slide up here, the last slide, is I want to invite you during this next song, they're going to just play instrumental for a minute and they're going to start this song. I want you to praise First John, 1 John 1, 1.9 over yourself, slowly, deliberately. If there's any sin you haven't confessed, brought into the light. Share it. And maybe you have shared it with the Lord, but you've kind of hidden it from other believers. Remember, this is the fellowship of lights as a community. Come share it with them. I don't care if it's been 10 years or 10 minutes. Share it either by yourself or grab a, a person in your DNA and, or someone not in your DNA and ask to, to have them pray with you. And what would it be like if we were a church that was shame-free? Not sin-free, because sin will be here until Christ comes back, but shame-free because we're regularly confessing and walking in the light. Can you imagine the depths of our relationships, The how freely love would flow between each other, how much we would grow in trust, how much healing we would find in ourselves with each other? I want to be that church, and I know we can by the power of this word. So Christians, let us walk in the light as he is in the lights. And when you walk in the light, you're going to have fellowship with other believers. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse you. And if you do sin, because you will, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that in you that there is forgiveness. And thank you that there's light in you and in you is no darkness. What, what would it be like if, there were, if you were a God that had darkness? How terrifying would that be? And yet we don't have to fear. If we are walking the light, we have much to fear for holding on to darkness. And so, Father, I just put, pray a special anointing that would fall upon this room right now. Holy Spirit, right now. Just deep conviction and even deeper joy in you. Deep conviction and greater joy in the Savior. Cleansing power in this room. Powerful, cleansing. Power would just flow as we are real with our sin. That we would take out those skeletons that we've hidden so carefully. That you would prick our consciences that have been warped. That we would all walk in the light. This in this entire room, every single person, without exception, would be walking the light by the end of this gathering. Because your light is flowing and darkness is fleeing. So I just pray. That your word would be powerful, more powerful than our shame. Your light would be more powerful than the darkness that remains. And light would just flow right now. In Jesus' name.